Okay, everybody, welcome to the Mind Hunter Companion. We are we are rapidly uh, approaching the end of season two. Here we are at season two, episode eight. Uh, Peter, welcome. Welcome, Doug. Um, uh, we're just getting down to it. One more uh, after this one, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, literally. Um, so uh, we uh, we begin uh, episode eight with none other than our old friend. Uh, Dennis Rader, uh, who's his, driving his, ADT his security van. van, right? His ADT van uh, in Eastboro, Kansas, and he's, he's taking he's out kind of another, yeah, he's kind of on the hunt a little bit. Yeah, yeah, he's back in business, right? And he's he's kind of following a woman in daylight to her house, and he parks outside her house with a lot of interest until um, something happens. Well, yeah, well, a, a guy comes out and is unloading groceries. Right, exactly. He sees a man in the house with the woman, and the man looks like he's a pretty big guy. Like He's shown carrying stuff out of the, the car. Yeah. Uh, and then Dennis just sort of slowly yeah, drifts it. off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also sort of like implied like, you don't know. Has he been watching this woman for a while? Is this just something he does every day or whenever opportunity strikes him? Like, you don't know. Yeah. You just know that, like, this part of his brain is still very much active. Right. And he's done this many times. So you see these little snippets, but you can infer that he's quite expert. Right. And then we cut after the credits uh, to Holden in his room. Kind of grim, <laughs> um, grim. Who little. is, uh, yeah, who's uh, watching TV and he sees uh, the commissioner on television offering a hundred thousand dollar reward. It's not chump change, especially in 1980. No, it's not chump change in 2019. Right. Um, and they are going to have a Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra benefit concert to try to drum up interest in and attention to uh, the child kidnapping. And then Holden's in his, his undershirt when he sees this. Yeah, it clearly interests him because he gets an idea right away. And, and, it, and it sort of plays on their desperation. Like, uh, you know, somebody says in the, in the news broadcast, you know, some of, somebody listening must know something. Yeah. Uh, and and Holden and then, Holden's idea that we'll see shortly is that that the the killer is going to attend the benefit and that they should try to get a lead on him that way. Right, he's going to find some way or look for some way to insert himself into the charity event. Right, because then he's he wants to be close to the investigation and he wants to be close to the crimes and their uh, and his pursuers. Um, and uh, just because it, it, it's it's of interest, not just it's not just defensive interest. It's of interest to him just because it gives him a thrill. This is what Holden is surmising. Exactly. And uh, right then we cut to uh, our Bill staked out with uh, that that former Atlanta detective, right? And then he's they're watching the uh, KKK. 
Right. And and the cop thinks it's mostly a waste of time. And Bill looks super bored. Like, it looks like they've been sitting in this car forever. And they're sitting in this car drinking old stale coffee. Right. And the cop, um, the former cops uh, even says, like, I've been watching these guys most of my adult life. I mean, how's that for, uh, like, depressing? Yeah. And, and, it, and the, the cop, uh, the cop is... You know, he's putting booze in his coffee. Like, you know, he just kind of knows, like, we're going to sit here and not a lot is going to happen. Yeah. Like, this is just this is just the way it's going to go down. Um, and, the, you know, the cop is kind of dismissive of the, the Klansmen. He says, like, he talks about them like sort of petty criminals and they're stupid. Yeah. But he doesn't really think that they're behind the child abductions and the murders. Right. Except maybe, Um, you know, they could use it as a sort of a way to do some kind of copycat crime just, but it would be more of opportunism rather than um, sort of devious planning. Right. Like maybe they can capitalize on all the kids missing and maybe kill one kid, but even that they kind of acknowledge and you can tell from the cops attitude he thinks is a bit of a stretch. It's also interesting the way that they play the stakeout, you know, they've done this, this season a couple of times where like, there's a little bit more emphasis on the nuts and bolts of police work. And it, you know, like they make it out to be dull and tedious. Yeah. And un- unpleasant. You right. Know, and like, you kind of get the sense that it's like, you know, humid is sitting in that car all night long. You know, it, it looks, yeah. Yeah. And it looks like they're on a bench seat, you know, like the two of them sweating <laughs> on the vinyl. Exactly. Right. And then, um, the, then the phones are tapped, but then it doesn't, it's not boring because they listen on a phone call and it's a little unexpected. Right. And, and one of them talks about going to get a kid. Yeah. Right. So there's a little bit of an interest and excitement for them, but you can tell that Bill and the local cop are kind of surprised by the whole thing. And they're not quite sure what to make for it. And like Bill even debates, even though they explicitly said that, you know, they might get a kid, you know, Bill doesn't even know if, that's enough for a warrant. Right. Because right. Especially after they got burned the last time. Exactly. Because the guy in his truck and his magazines. Um, right. Exactly. Right. They had to beg for that warrant. And uh, so, so he asks if uh, the, the PD can go to the DA this time. Right. So, but they decide to go ahead and put in for the warrant. Basically, even though the clans guys have been, pulled in for to the police station many many times over the years they kind of feel like it's it's too big a, a lead not to confirm it right they have to go after it um and then this, this brings us back to the idea of the benefit concert right the sammy davis jr frank sinatra concert and holden presents his idea right, to the local police chief who we've talked about many times before. And Holden basically pitches the idea that the, that the killer is going to volunteer and they're going to they're gonna put out a, a call for additional security so that he'll be working with directly with the, the police. So they think that this might be something that's irresistible, right, to, right. The, to the killer. And the idea is that they get basically a lot of young black men called in to apply for security jobs, and then they basically run backgrounds on them and see if see if they you know get a hit that way. Basically, it's they not make, a bad they idea. They make a list. Yeah, it's a great idea. They can make a list um, of applicants, in other words, and he'll you know 
presumably he'll be on the list. Right. And you can see this is sort of, you know, you know, as a follow up to the memorials and the crosses like this is an attempt of the BSU to be proactive and not just wait for him to strike again. Right. They're, they're trying to get him to somehow reveal himself. The police chief is not so uh, excited by the idea. Right. Uh, Once again, they and, run into the fact that it's 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 a new idea. Right. And Holden again brings up the idea that they're looking for a black male. So they have to then kick it up the hill to the commissioner and they go and they meet the commissioner who has been none too friendly to them in the past. Right. And he he expresses to them very directly that he thinks it's the clan and Holden has to very bluntly say to him, it's not the clan. Right. Right. And this is, this goes against everything that you could see the commissioner believes. And, you know, Holden tries to play this off scientifically. Like he says it's statistically rare for killers to, you know, act outside their, you know, their ethnic group. Um, and then he pushes back and basically says, you know, well, I still think this is the clan to which, you know, Holden basically has to say no to. Right. And the only way he makes progress in the end is, is just straight out of desperation because Holden tells him, you know, the kids are going to keep getting killed. We can keep looking for the clan, but we're coming up with nothing. And if this works, at least it's something. And out of desperation, he kind of okays it. Right. And the, the commissioner is worried that it will get out that they are looking for a black suspect. Right. The commissioner is acutely aware, as usual, of the political situation in Atlanta. Right. And he's kind of supposed to be like a vaguely Sharpton-esque character. You know, like, like you get the sense that he's as interested in his own political fortunes as he is in finding the killer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And playing up the idea that it's the Klan helps him politically in his community. Like, I don't know. I, I was distinctly uh, reminded of Sharpton in these scenes. Yeah, I think it's... He's not wearing a track suit. I think but. it's... Right, it's it's sort of like the worst racial, racial tension that's the norm there. You know, whereas maybe with Al Sharpton, that's sort of the worst example of racial tension, but it seems like that's just the norm in Atlanta. Right, and then Holden, you know, basically after a, a lot of back and forth, Holden pushes back and says, look, we do this or we wait for more bodies. Right. And when he puts it that way, right. And Barney has clearly waited on Holden's side in this scene. And then the commissioner says, you know, you can go ahead, but then you can't speak publicly about the idea that you're looking for a black person. You got to keep it dead silent. Right. And that's basically how they're able to get it through. Right. It's pure desperation. Yeah, it's interesting that even the even the commissioner had to sort of give in at some point, right? Like in the face of no other leads and nowhere to go, like the commissioner had to accept this very politically unpopular idea. Right, the body count just goes up and up. It's it's amazing too because I mean Atlanta's a much smaller place then than it is now. You think about 19 kids going missing. Right, including many kids from one neighborhood who knew each other. Like it's insane. Yeah, it is insane. You know? And it's it's interesting that they never really investigated the kids' connection to each other. 
Well, and again, and you can also kind of see why the black community is suspicious of police, you yeah. know, like they don't really feel like the police have their backs or they're a priority or they're missing kids evoke the same response as white missing kids. Like it's all brought out very well in the show, but it's, you know, if you read like, for example, in Douglas's books and he talks about the Atlanta child kidnapping cases, murders many times across several of his books it's really true like a lot of what he what they show in the show is exactly what douglas describes about how you know when he brought up the idea that the killer could be black like the amount of hostility and pushback that they got was very very severe probably even more severe than they show in the show i'm sure and and it's also true that they didn't really investigate it till it sort of became there were so many bodies that it really made it into the public because they really didn't prioritize it because it was black kids in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Scary. Very scary. So then Holden has to get flyers printed because he wants to recruit. He wants to put up flyers in the community so that uh, they'll get the, the potential uh, serial killer to apply for a security job at the, uh, as a volunteer and in, in the, at the charity event with Sinatra and, and uh, Sammy Davis right. Jr. And, and, and then they had this long scene of him with a local cop who's kind of presented as like a, like an oaf, you know, who's, who sort of takes hold into school and explains to him the process to get flyers typed up and printed and how he has to have a purchase number and deal with community relations and the police bureaucracy. And I have to tell you, this reminded me a lot of the scene of them the building the cross. Yeah, like it's they the didn't really thing. need this. Like they could have cut this whole scene out. It doesn't really add anything to the show because there's not a lot of meaningful follow-on to it. Like all we have to know is because we see that they go ahead with the, the plan and the fact that they have this, this is like a three or four minute scene. I don't think they, they don't cop. though. They, they can't, act, they actually, they try to go ahead with the plan. Right, they tried to, but what I'm saying is like the fact that the flyers don't get, I don't know, it just seemed like they could have gotten rid of the whole thing. The only thing is they have to explain why it was an abortive attempt. No, I hear you. It just, I don't know, it seemed like, it seemed inefficient. But yeah. I don't you know. This is directed by the same guy who directed the last episode. And I don't know, this is Carl Franklin. Maybe, maybe he liked this scene or he liked, he liked these sort of examples of the sort of brass tacks of how they have to get stuff done in Atlanta. But for me, it kind of fell flat. Well, it's, it seems insane, but yeah. Um, we then cut to um, Bill and Nancy at the psychiatrist. Yeah. It's time for another Nancy freak out. Yeah, yeah. They're waiting for their and then, son, and Nancy right, wants to move. with the shrink. Right. Um, and uh, and they're sitting in an office where they don't have a ton of privacy. Like, there's other parents in the waiting room with them, so they can't talk so freely. And then uh, uh, Nancy, who, by the way, is holding up and reading a magazine that contains a tobacco advertisement, by the way. Right. Um, she brings up the idea of selling the house. She wants to escape. Right. And and she kind of brings it in the context of maybe a bigger house, maybe a better neighborhood. Better schools for the kid. Yeah, but what but you're exactly right. And what she really means is she wants to get out of there. Right. And I think, you know, this is an echo of the scene of Brian with the little girl on the swing. 
you know, he's ostracized, they're ostracized. Right, and then the, the, you know, the mother came to visit her, right? So she that was it for her. When the right, mother came right. to visit and sat in her kitchen and told her, like, I forgive you. Right, and she really didn't handle it particularly well. No, she just like, has that to. That was a real struggle for her. She was pretty chilly to that woman. She has to get away. She can't take it. So, so Bill and Nancy, they kind of have an argument in the doctor's office, kind of like a whispered argument, uh, where she's looking at the magazine while they're talking, and they keep sort of having furtive glances at the other couple who are clearly overhearing everything that they're saying. Right. Everybody's curious about each other's problems. At the and then Bill tries to play it off like, well, when Atlanta's taken care of, then we can look into this. And Nancy does not, she does not want to hear it. Like she doesn't want to wait. She feels like her whole life has been put on hold forever and she doesn't want to wait anymore. Yeah. Nancy's kind of had it. Well, and, and you know, you could, Again, you know, you could see Nancy's point of view and why she's had it. Yeah, I don't um, blame her so much. Well, and also, like, you know, you get the sense that this is on top of years where Bill is not home. You know what I'm saying? Right. And and now that she really, really needs him, he's running off to Atlanta all the time. And, you know, he's flying back and forth, which isn't making Nancy happy. It's not making him happy. Right. It's not making Holden and Barney happy. Like it's the whole arrangement works for nobody. Right. Right. So, but you know, it's interesting how, you know, the addition of the other couple in this scene who don't have any dialogue, just the fact that Nancy and Bill have to play out this conversation in full view of another set of parents, right? It ratchets up the tension. Yeah. Like those poor actors didn't even get their SAG card renewed for this year. They didn't get any dialogue, <laughs> right? But it's a it's a great scene because just their addition and just a few shots of them sitting there, you know, glancing sidelong at Bill and Nancy, you know, and the fact that Nancy still brings it up at this time, like she just can't con contain herself anymore. They probably use like two stunt people as extras because <laughs> they didn't have to talk. Yeah. It's a good bit. Like it's actually it's a it's a good scene that, you know, has static camera and no action, but it conveys a ton and it 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 starts to lead us into the sort of the crescendo of the season from Bill and Nancy's point of view, but we'll get to that. Right. Um uh speaking of relationships on the rocks, <laughs> uh we then cut to uh Kay and Wendy. Yeah. Um and they are they're in case, getting ready to go out to dinner, right? Yeah, yeah they're in, in a lay shithole neighborhood. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and they're getting ready to go out, and uh, Wendy uh, pours some wine, or she's starting to pour some wine, and things look like they're you know, off to a little bit of a better start for the two of them. Well, Wendy, right? Wendy even flat out tells her like, you know, I, I'm sorry before I, I know what I want. I want to be with you. She's very right. explicit. Right. Which is hard for Wendy, right? We've learned that Wendy's not good at this sort of thing. And she has to actually come out and say this, right. And she specifically says she wants her, which is a big deal. Right. You know, Wendy it's, she's out there and she's up front and she's straightforward and she's, you know, she's kind of doing what she has struggled to do, right? It's a is, big move. 
it is a big move. And, and it's sort of, this is after their disastrous breakfast encounter. Yeah. And it had, right in the prior episode. Right. And the timing is just incredible because, you know, right after she. Right. Incredibly bad. Right. <laughs> right after she, t she basically tells, Wendy tells Kay that she wants to be with her and that things look like they're going to move forward. Kay remembers that she's supposed to have her son this weekend because the, the buzzer rings outside. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I don't think Kay remembers. I think Kay forgets. She she forgets right? she until gets the buzzer forgetting right? essentially until the buzzer rings. Right, right. Literally, literally as they're smooching essentially. Right, and then you know it's an interesting moment because like Kay and Wendy are having this sort of good intimate moment and positive movement in their relationship. Yeah, and. The doorbell rings and Kay is immediately very, very upset. And Wendy is partially disrobed at this point. Like her shirt is open, right? And her bra is visible and she basically has to hide. Like she ducks into the hallway and eavesdrops with uh, Kay talking to her former husband, right? Well, the kid is standing right there. Yeah, he's dropping the kid off for the weekend. Right. And then Wendy sort of like ticks into FBI mode. Um, spies on them and you know the the ex-husband essentially he kind of starts to figure out that Kay is acting strange and he he asks like are you alone is somebody up is somebody in right your place? like what's going on right I mean, um and then she says very very importantly uh that that you know is who's up there and she says something something like nobody important right Right, something, something really, really deflating. You could tell it's just meant to put the ex-husband off and sort of get him out of there at all costs. Right. Um, yes. Because like, like the ex-husband Tom, like he wants to come up. Right, and basically he's kind of trying to see, you know, is she getting a better job? Is she like what's you know? He's got these nuts and bolts concerns, and um, that are reasonable about the kid and about how things are going to go financially and and she just kind of tries to put him off and Wendy hears it. Right. But again, along the way, right. Uh, Kay insults Wendy essentially like that. She says it's nothing. Right. He says, is it someone or something important or someone important? And she says, no, it's nothing. And then Wendy kind of wordlessly turns around and grabs her bag. Right. And just walks out. When he takes you know, she off. Just, yeah, she just sort of ghosts Kay. And again, you you know, she's hurt. Like, she's tried her hardest to sort of reach out and do what Kay asked her to do after the breakfast fiasco in the last episode. Yeah, it's a huge turnaround from one moment to the, to the immediately following moment. Their, their relationship is kind of like moving forward at a high point, and then next second, Wendy is horrendously insulted. Well, and, and Wendy, too, like, you know, if you kind of put yourself in Wendy's mindset, like she's almost, I don't want to say more comfortable, but more used to when things aren't going well. You know what I mean? Like it's unusual for her when things do go well. Like, you know, she's a, you know, she's a sort of a cynical person by nature. And like when things kind of implode, you can almost sort of see like Wendy slip on like those feelings of sort of anger and resentment like an old shirt you know like here i go again 
Well, she, she you know, she's not good at sort of being being vulnerable and not being in control, and you know, all of a sudden, she kind of she had sort of screwed up her courage and to to appear sort of vulnerable to yeah. Kay and say she wanted her, and then the next second, literally the next second, Kay's the whole relationship implodes. Right, right. But Wendy's sort of like she's so uncomfortable being vulnerable that any minuscule threat to her, like you maybe could see that you could see her being insulted by what Kay says. But on the other hand, you also realize that, that, that she's not going to deal with her ex-husband with whom she ended the relationship on sort of very, very strange terms in a, in a completely straightforward way. Well, and you know, you know, you could see Kay's point, you know, yeah. and th- and this is kind of like what Kay was getting at in the prior episode with the breakfast, like, like the actual mechanics of their relationship if they go forward are complicated. You know what I'm saying? Like Wendy is in the closet. Like Kay has a child, right, and yeah. and an ex husband, and you know, this is supposed to be 1980. Right. Right. So, you know, the idea of like divorcing your husband and being gay is, you know, it's very, very far from the mainstream. And, you know, this kind of validates everything Kay said in the past episode. Like, this isn't so easy. And unless we're prepared to really, really swim in these waters, we can't just casually move forward. And, and it turns out that it's not just Wendy who's not ready, it's Kay. Yeah. Well, it's uh it's 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 an incredible turnaround. Yeah. And, and once again, poor Wendy just gets slapped in the face. Yeah, and, and she is having a rough season, Wendy. Yeah, I know. First season went a lot better for her. Although first season kind of went a lot better for everybody, to be totally honest. Um, we cut back to the Omni where we see Tasha with Holden and Bill, and they want to conduct the interviews at the Omni. Um, and, and she, you know, she very quickly kind of figures out what they're doing. And she says, do you think he's going to apply right. uh, for the job? Um, and they are interrupted by two uh, black boys who are basically like kind of horsing around in the hallway. Yeah, they're like preteen maybe. Yeah, and, and, and Taja sort of castigates them, but at the same time, she gives them uh, 20 bucks, which, by the way, is a lot of money in 1980. Yeah, she would have given them like five bucks. Yeah, yeah. So she gives them uh, $20 so that they can sort of, you know, uh, go to, uh, I don't know, run off and do something, but basically to stay out of trouble. And the implication is, you know, she's kind of worried about young black males on the street. Right. Right. And it turns Unsupervised. out. It turns out there's like, there's a shopping mall like attached to the to the hotel basically. Right. And there's an arcade nearby and the kids sort of spill over to the hotel to run around. Right. And they, they go or walk over there and, and they take a look and Holden's gears are turning again as he sort of looks at the arcade and says, we have to put up a, a volunteer notice in here. Like he kind of sees it as a, as a potential hunting ground for kids because the place is full of kids. Playing video right, kids games. Who could be who could be approached by an adult? By the way, did you notice that there's a Walden books in this mall? Yeah, they they deliberately show that for a second. Yeah. Do you remember Walden books? Of course. 
I loved Walden books. Yeah. They, we had the we had the B Dalton, which was the quote unquote big bookstore by us. And then down the mall, the other end of the mall, you had the like one room Walden books. Yeah. Anyway. And and, and the mall also had an arcade. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. So um so they, they yeah, they they stick their head in the in the hunt in the sorry, in the arcade, which Holden calls a hunting ground. Like this would be a very fertile place for their killer to go looking for unaccompanied young, you know. Uh, black males right they're playing asteroids yeah yeah um so we shift gears to the task force center where the the interview with the clansmen uh who they caught on the phone um is under is going on so it's it's like it's bill and the local cop who was on the stakeout with them and the clansman plays it pretty cool he seems pretty comfortable yeah, you get the sense he's been he's been hauled in quite a lot. Yeah, and even he's probably even talked to the same cop before. Yeah, and and Holden's really just in the background in this scene, sitting in the back of the room, looking bored. Um, and they they play him the audio tape uh, of his phone call, where he basically says that he you know might go get another kid or something like that. Right. And so they're they're grilling him, and he he doesn't admit anything. Yeah, he says he didn't do anything, and he doesn't hate anyone, and he he kind of mocks Holden a little bit, you know. Like you could tell, like a he's not their man, and b they're not going to get anywhere with him. Right, he's you a know? pro. And he's, yeah, and he's overtly racist. Like right. he's he's very very hostile to blacks. He he's not embarrassed. And he about says it. it's not illegal. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. He says he has the right to basically feel any way he wants and they, they don't have anything on him and they can't prove anything. Right. He right. basically and, 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 cites the First Amendment, you know, that, that he's able to, it's his right to free speech to express hate or express whatever he wants, which is true. And and Bill really leans on him. Like, Bill comes in close and gets in his space and, you know, says, like, what did you mean when you said that about getting another one? And he he kind of implies that, you know, well, you know, I knew you were tapping my phone and I didn't do anything. You just had me talking some smack on the phone and and that's it, right? Right. You, you got nothing. And then they... And he's essentially telling the truth. Right. And then, and then he passes a lie detector test because they send him right out from there. Right, right. Which, which again, you know, the lie detector thing is always an interesting idea. Like, to what extent it helps, or to what extent it hurts, right? But it gives it gives him something big that he says, you know, he can say, "I went ahead and I passed a a lie detector." But you know, even before that scene, um, he sort of acknowledges, you know, to Holden that this is all a big waste of time, and you've got the wrong person. And he actually is the one who suggests the lie detector. Right, yeah. they don't say it. He says it. Right, he volunteers. Right, and then he he passes, he passes the lie detector multiple times. Right, right. So very very quickly, right, they acknowledge that he's passed multiple times. His brother has passed, and forensics got nothing out of them. Right, they searched their house and their truck, and they got nothing. So right. they've kind of run into it once again, a dead end in this Klansman thing. And then he basically kind of verbally flips them off as he's, you know, like he knows that they have to let him go. And he, 
sort of casually walks through the uh, through the 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 crisis center, whatever the task force office. His brother flips off the cops, and basically, you know, he walks free because he knows they have nothing. Right, it was totally fruitless. Yeah, totally, totally. And so, so you know, Bill's, you know, sort of Bill's time in the stakeout and all of that work and effort comes to nothing. Right. Um, and then it turns out that while they were questioning him, they found a twentieth body. Right. And then, right. so, like, literally, while they had this this suspected Klansman in in custody, and they were spending time on him, the twentieth body is found. And and then interestingly, yeah, they announced. Yeah. Right, they announced that they have they know about hair and fibers, right? right. And and the F, the FBI is not happy about that because they want to keep certain things from getting out, both because they can use it as a source of uh, guilty knowledge for somebody they they get, and also because it'll change the methodology of the killer when he hears that. So then, from right, then because, on, they won't have the same fibers, right? And they know that that this is somehow a leak, like someone has leaked this to the media. Right. And this is a significant loss for them that, that the, the press is openly talking about evidence and how it's gathered in the case. Yep. Um, you know, you wonder, I don't know when they started looking at hair and fibers probably, in, uh, you know, it probably goes back criminal cases. Yeah. I don't know how far way. back it goes. Well, fingerprints because, go back a long way, you know, and probably goes back to not, it's, you know, it's way further that back then, obviously, than DNA. and Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting question, because this is supposed to be, you know, 1980. Yeah. Um, and, and for example, you know, I remember reading books in the early 1980s, like crime books, uh, like Red Dragon comes to mind, uh, the, the, the Thomas Harris book book that's the first in the Hannibal Lecter series and you know that book has got to be from late 70s early 80s and there's talk of hair and fiber in forensics in police work in that book but I don't know I, I have to look it up I'll look it up before the next show I don't know how far back hair and fiber goes yeah they had blood typing you know from body fluids and they had you know they had certain forensic things it just was not as specific as it is now well, and I guess you have to have like a whole catalog of available fibers to compare to, and, right? Right, because you know you got to be able to match before and after you get somebody, right? Probably not enough to just match something to somebody's, you know, car fibers or or apartment. You got to be able to say exactly what type of carpet it is. Right. right so we uh, we shift gears uh, to to Bill and Nancy and Bill comes home and the house is kind of a mess. Yeah, there's, there's dishes, dishes in the sink. Yeah. And it's not, you know, you get the sense that, you know, high and tight haircut Bill is used to a very orderly <laughs> home and, and Nancy's out in the backyard smoking, basically looking like a zombie. Yeah. Nancy's you know, like gone. she doesn't even turn to look at him. Well, she's having like the prolonged, chilly freak out instead of the hot and heated crying spell freak out. Right. And, and, you know, her features have kind of hardened, you know, like you can see, like she is resolved about this move and she's, she's talking about leaving the furniture with the house and not bringing it to the new house. And Bill's not with the program yet. You know, like Bill says, no, right. you know, I thought we were going to do this after Atlanta. Right. And then 
she basically says, well, that's what you said. That's not what I said. Right. Um, so, you know, they are, their opinions about the future of the Tench household are starting to diverge quite sharply. And then, yeah. you know, she makes an interesting comment about Brian. Like, he behaved normally for a little bit today while they were in, while he was in the bathtub. Yeah. Um, and then she says that they had just sort of like a little respite, you know, like he was like a normal kid again and I was his mom. And then she says something really striking. She says that she's relieved that he's not her biological child. Right. When she looks at him, it kind of, it comes back to her what happened from that little moment, her little moment of calm. And then she, she basically can't really tolerate what happened and what he did or what he was involved in. And she basically says she's glad that he didn't come from her. And Bill is kind of stunned. Like you could tell Bill is unprepared for this. And you don't know, by the way, from Bill's perspective, you don't know if she told Bill about the visit from the dead boy's mother. Yeah. Bill's you know, you don't know. Bill's and maybe shot. she did or maybe she didn't. And she takes right? off. But yeah, yeah, but the, but you could see though, like this is echoing in her very, very hard. Right. And it's pretty cold of her to sort of like find relief from the fact that, you know, their adopted child that they've worked hard on for years is not related to her. As if to say, like, you know, he's the sick one. It's not me. What, right. So she's she's detaching from everything at this point. Like she's right. running she's away. She's detaching from Bill. She's detaching from the house. And the kid. And now she's attaching from, right, from Brian, which is an enormous change. Right. Because before she was freaking out because she was so attached. And now she's basically gone so far as to have to distance herself from everything. She can't take right. it anymore after that visit from the mother. Yeah, I that think was the turning you know, it's point. funny because you could see it was the mother's breaking point and it kind of becomes Nancy's breaking point too. Yeah. And then she does something else very uncharacteristic. She dumps Brian on Bill. She says, I'm going out. You pick him up. You, you take make care dinner. of her. Yeah, you get him in the bed. You know, AMF, I'm out. Yep. And she takes her purse and she goes. And, you know, Bill is trying to be a stand-up guy and he says, all right, I'll do it. Where are you going? And she says, I don't know. She says that she's going out. You know, she right. gives the no old, information. Where are you going? Out. What are you doing? Nothing. Right, routine. Right, that's what Bill gets. And you could tell, like, he throws his cigarette in the ground. He's just like, fuck. He's shocked and pissed. Well, and he also knows he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. Right? Like, yep. he's gone all the time. Like, He's pissed. It was a bad interaction. But if she says she wants to go out, like, what's he going to do? Say no. And he's gone all the time. Like, she's very effectively boxed him in. Things are not going in the right direction. No, not That's at all. Bill must be thinking. Well, and, and Bill is also, you know, he's, he's not there enough to really change the, you know, the course the ship is going on. Like, he's gone all the time, and Nancy is free to sort of have her mind and her thoughts go any direction. Yeah, poor Bill. Yeah. Um, so we cut back to the second scene of Holden and this sort of buffoonish-like cop um, who who basically says that even the Holden has kind of followed uh, the, the rules of engagement about getting the flyers done. 
it's just not going to happen because they don't have enough time. And the cop makes it clear that he's not going to do anything to help this thing move along faster. Like he sort of on the surface conveys civility, but his demeanor and behavior just basically says, screw yourself. You know, he, he's sort of like a cog in the bureaucracy. And, you know, yeah. he basically reflect. he just says that, you know, sorry, nothing I can do. It's, it's the way it is. There's no way the flyers are going to get made. Yeah. You know, he kind of reminds me of a little bit. He, um, he kind of reminds me of Maury Chaikin in Dances with Wolves when he plays uh, the army officer at the base, you know, when, when uh, Costner is trying to get all his paperwork done. Right. And like, you know, he has this sort of like drunken mad army officer who kind of like fumbles everything in front of him. And like, they're speaking two different languages. It kind of reminds me of that scene a little bit. Hmm. Um, but again, I would say, do you need this scene? Like, can you just get rid of that scene? Because then it sort of makes it look like the Atlanta PD is obstructing them, which, you know, hasn't been the theme of the show. Right. I mean, the Atlanta PD has different thoughts about who did this and how to go about it, but they're not really obstructing. I don't know. I mean, if you just sort of look at this through the editor's eye, could they have just cut both those scenes? Well, but they need to explain somehow why they didn't implement Holden's plan, which is a good plan. It is a good plan, but maybe they could have, you know, just had Holden say, I couldn't get the flyers printed because of, you know, APD paperwork or something like that. And then been done with it. They could have maybe condensed it to one little scene. Like this is the shorter scene and they could have maybe just condensed it to this one, just showing it's like a one yeah. minute scene that just shows that he can't get anything done. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. It slows the episode down. Um, we cut back. Uh, to Bill, who's picking up uh, Brian from school. And Brian, again, is isolated among the other kids. No one talks to him. He doesn't talk to anyone else. Yeah. right? And this is sort of done a along the literal and figurative backdrop of all the other kids, you know, playing with each other and climbing on each other like kids do. And Brian is just kind of robotic in this scene. Yeah, and he doesn't talk to his father, which is even more remarkable when his father is basically being very nice and takes him for ice cream. That's yeah, really, lets you know, him sit in the front seat. Right, and then right, and then they're sitting there eating ice cream, and and he, you know, he's really being gentle and nice with him. And yeah, Bill's trying. He gets nothing. And he, he kind of, he tells, he tells a story about going fishing with his own father and times he spent with his dad. And I think the only thing the kid asks is he says, like, he talks about fishing and the kid says, like, did the fish die? Right. Right. <clears throat> like a death related question. Yeah. It's the only time he engages him at all. The entire few minutes that Bill is talking and interacting with him. And Bill's just <laughs> like, like crestfallen. I like when Bill... <laughs> Sorry. The whole time Bill's doing this, he's smoking. Yeah. Bill's always smoking. I'm surprised right, but he's he... smoking like two feet from his kid's face. Well, I'm surprised he's not, you know, giving the kid a puff and then having a scotch with his other hand. <laughs> right at the ice cream parlor. Right. Um, but you know, it's 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 kind of the scene has a couple of functions. One is it shows, you know, in a tangible way, like how far 
like Bill is from the relationship with the son that he would like. You know, this is, you know, Bill said in an earlier episode that his father didn't really talk to him. Remember that when Holden was at his house? You know, yeah. Bill says, oh, my dad never talked to me. But then you actually find out here that maybe that wasn't so true. And there was some interaction and the, and the, and the, they did stuff together. And then, you know, he kind of puts a little, he puts the screws to Brian a little bit. And he basically says, like, look, you won't talk to me. Like, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what's going on. Right. I don't know what your mood is. You know, you have to help me. And the kid doesn't do anything. And also, I think the scene is also supposed to show that maybe this is Nancy's day all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that importantly, it kind of brings you up to speed with what Nancy's going through. That, you know, even under the, under kind of the, the microscope the kid's been under, his behavior's been under, under all, with all the stress they've been through, he's still, you know, he's not normal. He can't interact normally. And it gives no, you a taste of it. He doesn't very, even begin to know how to be normal. And, you know, Bill, Bill levels with him and he says that he's afraid. Yeah. Like the kid, like he's frightened by the lack of interaction and he doesn't want to be afraid, but he doesn't know, he just doesn't know what to do. And yeah. the kid, you know, barely looks up from his ice cream. But by the end, you know, by the end of that little monologue, Bill isn't really talking to Brian. He's kind of talking to himself. Like he's kind of admitting aloud how scared he is and how bad things have gotten. Bill looks miserable. Yeah. Holt McCallany, man. Yeah. Playing a bundle of nerves. Yeah, that is um, a, that's a really rough scene for Bill. Yeah, and he kind of realizes, you know, he's wasting his breath. Like, he, in a kind of resigned way, he snubs out his cigarette. Yeah. And, and he gets pays up. the bill. Yeah, yeah, like, well, that was all for nothing, you know. Um, we shift gears. Uh, to the concert, right? Where we see, just for like a second, the guy is playing Sammy Davis Jr. from far away, who's literally singing The Candyman, like his signature number. Yeah, yeah. You um, get a little like backstage view of, uh, of, of Sammy and Sinatra. Right. Performing. And then, um, yeah. And it's funny because I bet that they had to film them from far away because the guys didn't really look a ton like Sammy and Sinatra. Right. Um, and then they're Holden and Barnier looking out from the wings of the stage, basically looking out into the crowd and, and just thinking he's here somewhere, like somewhere in this building yep. is the killer. They missed their chance. Yeah, it's a great bit. Um, and then Sammy uh, basically acknowledges uh, the stop women, the stop mothers. Right, and they basically sort of like talk about like the the ma the magnitude of what is happening in Atlanta. So it's coming straight from you know Sammy and Sinatra's mouths. Yeah, um, but uh, Holden is just so while this is all happening, Holden is just getting more and more angry because he feels like they have just they've lost this opportunity. I mean, your argument that these, that those two scenes with the fat, unhelpful cop, like that's the emotional payoff right there. Yeah. Right? Yep. So maybe, maybe. And then uh, we cut to DeKalb County, Georgia. By the way, they should have where, had like Sinatra make some kind of, you know, how, you know, like the Rat Pack, they were always insulting Sammy. <laughs> they should have had to make some like racial slur at the benefit. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god. Um, and then we cut to a scene where another body is pulled. Sorry, another body is found. This time pulled from the river, and Holden, Barney, and Bill all see, it, and they immediately realize that he threw the body in the river to scrub it of evidence. Right. It's exactly right. what they were afraid of, you know, earlier right. is he's changed his MO. And then sort of um, it, 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 it validates Holden's idea that he is watching the press coverage and he is learning from it. Right. And this is actually so, an important little scene because a couple of things happen. Like they realize something about the crime, Barney, like, Barney and the three of them, or well, Barney and and uh, actually the three of them all kind of come up with their next strategy to try to catch him, and and Bill and Holden kind of finally have it out, all in one one scene, like all kind of smushed together with them standing next to this muddy river with the body being pulled out in the background. Right. But again, this scene feels compressed, right? Like we wasted minutes on other stuff in this episode. And then this scene feels very, very compressed. Like, like a ton of stuff happens. Yeah. A ton of stuff happens. And, you know, they're kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. It looks like they're wearing the same clothes that they were wearing at the benefit last night. Um, But, but Holden basically takes Bill to task and says, you know, I just can't take it that you're never here anymore. Right. You're Uh, not, you're not supporting me. Basically. Right, and and Bill says I'm doing the best I can. Holden says it's not enough, um, and then Bill really pushes back. He, he says, you know, I don't work for you, which is kind of a big thing for Bill to say to Holden. Right, he kind of like has to kind of pull a little rank on him in this scene, and then he he finally comes out with it and he confesses the truth to Holden about his son. Right, being right. Right, a witness to other children, you know, killing another child. Right. Yeah. He talks about the social workers, like he kind of like drops everything and and literally in the background of the scene, they are dragging the body out of the river. Yeah, you know and Barney is watching. Yeah, I think the reason your your comment is is very well put that there's there's so much that happens in this scene that it's almost like you know, if you went to go refill your nachos um, when you're watching this, you you just missed like this massive turning point in the second season, you know, right? The, because by Bill, Bill kind of like lets fly. Bill, he doesn't raise his voice. Bill lets fly, and there's an inflection point in the investigation, and uh, you know, like. Yeah, a lot happens in this one scene. I mean, it's just like a, it's a real eye blink. Everything happens then. Well, but also at the end of the scene, he verbally bitch slaps Holden and he says, right. Ted Gunn sent me down here to make sure you don't do anything stupid and jeopardize us. Right. Right. So then Holden sort of has to reformulate everything and view all the events through a different lens of what Bill is going through and the fact that he himself was under a lot more scrutiny than he was aware of and that maybe he didn't have ted gun support the way he thought he did right yeah and bill tells him like you know i'm down here to babysit you and i'm having to fly back and forth and you're all you ever say all you ever talk about is the one theory that you have no matter what comes up which is unprofessional you know he tells him like you're telling me 
you're telling me I'm unprofessional because I'm flying back to go to the social worker, but you don't pay. All you do is advance one theory ever, no matter what comes up. And he tells them like, also, you know, you look anxious, take a Valium. Right. He says, he says the quote unquote shows some fucking professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then literally like Bill walks away again, smoking a cigarette and Holden is just like standing there by the side of the river and literally with his mouth open. Right. But to his credit, he's been schooled. He kind of like recovers and then they, they move on to the other massive part of the scene, all in one scene, which is that, that they come up with their next strategy right then, you know, which right. is to they, stake they've out the river. watch the rivers. Yeah. So, uh, and Barney basically said he grew up there and then he, he's dropping it from a bridge. Right. And then Barney makes the important point that if you drop a body, uh, you've got to drop it in the middle, right? If you drop something in the edge of the river, it's not going to go anywhere. If you drop something in the middle of the river, the current will, will take downstream. It. Right. And, you know, he says like he knew, he knows this from his childhood there, which is, <clears throat> it's implied it's something that, you know, Holden and Bill didn't know. Right. Right. So, so like, you know, now you come back from your, you know, refilling, getting another beer from the fridge and you've just missed like this. Right. Exactly. One trip to take a leak or right. Or get some, just some chips. Yeah. You you, missed everything. You just missed. Yeah. Like two or three major events all within like 90 seconds. So they go back to the police chief and basically says, look, we're going to try this river strategy. Yeah. Last, right? last time they wanted lucky right, you know, and we, we catch him in the act. Last time they wanted to print some flyers and that was hard enough. Right. This time now they want to basically expend thousands and thousands of dollars in overtime to stake out every bridge on the river. Right. And then they, they basically get this time limit. They get, four weeks right they're given four weeks to make this happen and i guess there's the implication that after that the money is out like they can't afford to do it anymore yeah well yeah that's what he says they only have i mean they're already massively over budget i guess the city only has so much money even with the investigation being as important as it is and, and so much in the public eye and they're getting so much heat for it they still only have so much money to spend on overtime because overtime's time and a half. You know, it's really, yeah. it's just, I mean, you can imagine the amount of cops that are being paid overtime all over the city. It's, it's extremely right. high, large amount of money that gets racked up. And I think, I think they said earlier in the episode, either this one or the last one, that the city is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars over its budget just right. because of this. So we cut to, uh, Bill Holden and Barney and other cops staking out the bridges. Yeah, there's like a montage, isn't there? Yeah, it just sort of cuts back and forth, like Bill spraying himself with bug spray. <clears throat> and then a black cop brings um, uh, Barney and Holden coffee, and the black cop expresses skepticism of the whole idea, especially the idea that the, the killer is black. Right. Like he says the pro he doesn't know that, you know, the guy who created the profile is with an earshot and he says like the profile is bullshit. He calls it calls it psychological 
mumbo jumbo and he it's, expresses right. the view that it's going to be a white person it's going to be a cracker the, it's going to be right it's basically the kkk or it's some white racist right um and boy, boy, by the way i don't know if there's a worse town you could be stuck doing stakeouts in atlanta right like every scene like they're soaking through their armpits it's supposed to be hot and humid you know what i mean and they're sitting up all night getting eaten alive by bugs the bug spray thing is just brilliant because it just takes it ratchets up the level of misery you right know, even more and you know the, the you know the bug it's spray like is papillon. sticky and stinks <laughs> Papillon. It's like, yeah, they're like, you know, it couldn't really get much worse. When we used, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when we were kids at the public pool, which I think I went to a lot more than you did, at the public pool, they used to show movies in the summer and it was like, you know, super buggy. And I literally, my, my brother and I would stand outside in our bathing suits and close our eyes and cover our mouths. My mother would spray us from head to toe with off spray. Right. That was like the solution. It was like 10% DEET. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm sure. Yep. Exactly. It's a miracle we didn't get lymphoma in our teens. Right. Um, but I just remember like... At least it's you didn't funny, get malaria. When I, yeah. When, <laughs> I saw, when I saw that Bill spraying himself with that stuff, I, I flashed to my mother, like literally coating me on like a quarter inch thick layer of off bug spray. Yep. Um, so, you know, we we have a good scene, I think, of of Holden and Barney at a bar. And this is right after they heard the black cop basically piss all over the profile. And Holden is forced to defend the profile to Barney and basically right. say, like, you know, like, look, it's it's not a bad idea. Like, this is good. Let's stick with it. Um, and, you know, Bill arrives in the midst of this scene and uh, the news on the TV at the bar is about the the child murders. So, right. you know, it, it kind of implies like they can't get two seconds where they're not talking about this thing. Yeah. Um, they just, yeah, it's just, it's just 24 hours a day for them. Right. And then, then there's this kind of montage, I think next where they're showing the stakeout, just going night after night after night all over the place. Yeah, and they're tired and they're sweaty. Right, they're falling asleep in the car and they're like trying to wake each other up. Yeah, they're sort of like it gets kind of sophomoric. Like like Bill turns the radio on really loud and yeah. starts the car. Right. And and like and you kind of get the sense that like they're eating terrible food. Like there's like I think there's a shot of like Holden making sandwiches and you know, looks like bologna on white bread. Yeah, yeah. something awful. Um yeah. And uh, yeah, it just it implies that this is going on and on and on. They're kind of losing track of the days. Yes, they're up all night. They're trying to sleep during the day and getting woken up in the hotel. Like it's it's a good kind of a good montage. They're getting eaten by mosquitoes. Yeah, my favorite bit in the scene is where um, is where Bill wakes up during the day, and the light is coming in, and he has to like adjust the hotel room curtains. So yeah. that the sunlight doesn't fall on him, but by but in doing so, he's totally awake, right? And yeah. his, his chance for sleep is over, right? More bug spray. They get Caladrill, that pink stuff, right? Um, and then lots of shots of incredibly steamy or like dew or mist covered 
uh, windows on the cop cars. You know, it's funny because they don't really do montages yeah. in this show. I mean, montages are often a lighthearted way to convey things. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's sort of interesting that they do a lighthearted montage, right, amidst the stakeout for the killer to drop a body in the river. Yeah, it, it's not that lighthearted, though, because the subject of every single shot in the montage is difficulty and suffering. Right, but it is kind of done a little bit for laughs, like like the bug spray or like the sandwiches or, you know, like there's a bit where Bill gets woken up in the middle of the night by, or during the day, I guess, by, you know, the, the, the cleaning lady in the hallway with her vacuum. Right, like, he's staying there at his undies. I mean, it's kind of hard to have a not lighthearted montage, you know what I mean? Well, it's also, it's kind of like a music video, you know, the, it's it's a musical right. montage, you know, they have a, a playing song through it. and Right. So it's, uh, I kind of liked it. And they, they need to convey. Well, and they do have a shot of them all pissing outdoors together. That's true. That's pretty lighthearted. Yeah. It's like Boy Scout moment. So they end up back with the uh, the police chief, the chief. And they basically say that they they don't have anything. Like they're, they're, their big stakeout is, is coming up empty. Right. right. And, like and there have been a bunch more people found. Right, and it's all about money, right? The, the police chief flat out says to them, we're out of money, you know? And the implication is, that's it, right? It's like, right. we're, you know, I think he says that there's a little bit more time left, but that's it. I think he said tonight's the last night or something like. Yeah, no, they, they get one more week because I think the next week is paid for. Right. So that's it. So we we cut to Wendy. Um who we haven't seen, you know, we haven't seen Wendy in a good half hour at this point. And uh, she is unwrapping an answering machine. Right. Um, and in a really good bit, she decides to use the generic message. Like she's contemplating, like, how should she have her outgoing message on the answering machine be? Yeah. And she tries a couple of versions. And in the end, she decides to use the generic message. Right. And then. Of course, that very second K calls and she's downstairs. Right. But, it, you know, just this little bit with the answering machine, like, like to me, like that little bit with the answering machine is worth a ton because it again sort of highlights like Wendy is unsure of how to present herself to the world. Like she's unsure or she's back and forth with how she acts with Wendy, right? She's, you know, she's, back and forth at work like she outed herself at work and no one kind of bought it you know and she reverts back to the closet like it's a good little bit like it's a it's a very very small scene that says a lot about wendy's character and then and right, she's, she's trying to, there when and she's getting calls. an answering machine so she doesn't have to talk to people right you know? right right she's, the answering machine is another layer between her and human interaction correct and then while all this is happening, she gets an actual message. And it's Kay, who is actually downstairs. Coming to try looking for her. Right. And then Wendy picks up. Remember in the old days when you could do that, by the way? Like, you could screen your calls and you could pick up. And then, like, the person would know, like, hey, you were screening your calls. Right. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome, by the way. 
<laughs> I had the same message on my phone for literally 10 years when I had an answering machine just like that when I was in school. I literally never changed the message once. So she goes downstairs, and there is a very forlorn-looking K, right? Yeah. who has no idea what she's about to walk into. And Wendy is very robotic. Like, we see Wendy sort of walk from the elevator to the, the foyer of the building, and Wendy is, she is cold. Right, they're standing in the little place between, like, the two exterior doors, like the little insulated right. space where the intercom is. Um, and, uh, you know, Wendy does not invite her up, right? right? Kay says, can I come up? And when Wendy says, no, like she's like, right. we're going to talk here in this foyer. It is really, it is a cold, like Wendy's in a very, like her arms are crossed. She's leaning back. She's in an extremely defensive posture. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and she's angry. She's pissed. And, and Kay says, you know, you weren't returning my calls. And she says, well, I didn't know who was calling. Meaning like, I don't really know you. Not like I didn't know who was on the phone. Right. But like, I don't know who you are. Like, I heard you with your husband. Right. And, you know, right. So, and Kay says, you know, of course I'm manipulative with my ex. You know, I have to, I have to be, I have to try to maintain a relationship with my kid. Right. Sort of implying that she might lose partial custody if it came out that she was gay. Right, we don't know if the if the husband knows. Right, um, and then Wendy basically says, "You know, I heard you lie about me. I heard you lie about yourself. Um, you know, you're supposed to be Mrs. Upfront and Honest. That's kind of the 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 you know, the mask you wear to the universe. And all I did was hear you lie about everything." Right. Um, and, you know, Kay is kind of unprepared for this because Wendy is, Wendy is not, uh, you know, she's not totally off base. Right. There's an element of truth um, in what Wendy's saying, you know, that, that Kay's not perfect. Kay's been the one that has been the, the truth teller up to this point in their relationship, right? Well, and, and I think, you know, the Wendy-Kay relationship you know, they both have points. Like, they're both navigating very complex situations that the other doesn't fully understand. And, you know, maybe if they could kind of have been upfront about that with each other, right? Or sort of conveyed from the get-go, like the complexity, there's circumstances and the need for patience, but they kind of like moved very, very quickly and they almost went, you know, too fast, right? Yeah. And now they're sort of paying for it. Like, they got, they got into bed with each other like, literally and metaphorically before they really knew the other person. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, this scene ends very, very badly. Yeah. You know, they both essentially blame the other for the, for the failing of the relationship. And then Wendy says, yeah, it's about me. Wendy buzzes herself back into her own building and says to Kay, you're not who you think you are. Yes. Right. And walks out on her. Right. right. She basically says this persona that you've created, right, is, is a bunch of shit. And the real you is not who you like to portray to the outside world. And then this, the, the scene is actually filmed through glass. Like Kay closes the inner door. <clears throat> Sorry, Wendy closes the inner door in Kay's face and just sort of ices her. And she turns around and she walks into the 
her apartment building foyer. And like without a backwards glance, she walks in and gets in the elevator and poor Kay is, it's, it's implied that she's basically on the verge of tears and she's sort of out into the night and the relationship has ended. Yeah. It's, it's a really angry and terrible way to end. But you wonder, you know, is a little bit of a, is it a bit of an echo to the end of Holden and Debbie? Because they had that really abrupt and upsetting, angry end to their relationship on Debbie's front porch when she didn't invite Holden in. Right. Remember that? She was breaking up with him and he figured it out. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, I mean, in my mind, it's very much an echo uh, of that scene. Right. And, and it sort of implies that, you know, in addition to all the, the emotional difficulties of working in this job, they're all struggling. Bill, Holden, Wendy, they're all struggling with personal lives. That they're not doing particularly well in. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to tell you, if I had one complaint about this season, is that I think that I would have liked to have seen more Wendy. Like, I think the Wendy storyline is super interesting. And Anna Torv, who plays her, just does an amazing job. Like, I kind of feel like in a lot of these episodes, the Wendy scenes are my favorite. I think we kind of, this season we did see, I mean, we barely seen any Holden. Like, this season has been about Wendy and Bill. Right. I agree. But I, I just think that they could beef up the Wendy storyline. Like I think that Anna Torv really handles her scenes well and she carries them, you know, whether she's working with agent Smith or with gun, right. Or with, with anybody, right. She's just really interesting to watch because she's so conflicted. Like that's why she's an interesting character. Yeah. You know, um, I'm just hoping that they make another season and next season's all about agent Smith. <laughs> but you know, to make a Star Trek reference, um, <laughs> well, you know, but you know, like it reminds me of Spock a little bit. Like Spock is interesting in the original series because he is conflicted and he has this great inner conflict that he cannot resolve. And and you know, if anybody's Vulcan like in this show, it's Wendy, and she too has this great inner conflict that she cannot resolve. I don't know. It's interesting to me. And again, like I, like I said earlier, Anna Torp, just she's really, really good. Well, I hope, the more they give her to do, the better she does with it. Let's put it that way. Well, man, I hope she goes into like you know mating season and then has to battle and with the you know she has to battle. You know. She has to battle on Vulcan. <laughs> We'll see. So we cut back uh, to Holden at the Omni, which, you know, we've learned in just this episode that the Omni opens up into the interior of a shopping mall. And Holden sees one of the two black boys that Tanya gave $20 to. And the boy is very, very hesitant around him. And he he gives him 10 bucks, And the kid says, I know what $10 buys, meaning like, don't like, you know, meaning I know a $10 buys from an adult male. Like it's one thing to get money from Tanya. Right. Right. It's another thing to get it from an adult male. Creepy. He basically says that, you know, adult men or someone he is aware of is giving them money, right. To take their photos and things like that. Right. Sort of like implying right, some sort of pedophile. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's going around taking pictures of little boys. Right. Like that's right. the and, norm. 
for the kid, which is really weird. Right. And then, and the, and the kid knows about children that have gone missing or have taken money. Um, and, you know, Holden gets this vibe that, you know, this kid, this that he randomly happened onto may have some valuable information for him. And then he makes the cardinal sin as a white man in Atlanta as he flashes a badge. Right. And the kid is gone. But the kid leaves skid marks. He's out of there so fast. Right. So, but that also bolsters, you know, the the profile a little bit, you know, like because the kid is suspicious of a white man, sort of further arguing that a white man couldn't get away with all this stuff. That is true. So then uh, we cut to Holden in his hotel room uh, where he's woken up by his clock radio and they find out that another body has been found, right? Right. 24. Uh, do they say 24? I think they say 28. No, I think they said number 24. Yeah. No, they say 28. They say 28. Um, but, you know, it's funny because the numbers bounce around, right? Because earlier in this episode, they said 19, then they said 20, and then the 21st was the one that they found um, in the river. Right. And now they jumped to 28. So. Well, time has passed, too. It's been like three, four weeks. Right, but I think, yeah, it's just it's just sort of a striking that they say the numbers and they're so high. Yeah. And, and Holden is listening to this news report. It's four in the afternoon. He's waking up to get ready to go on stakeout. And this is dun, 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 the last night of the stakeout. Right. right. This is the money is, is gone. Right. This, this is, is it. it. So they've got one last night to do something. So they head down to the task force center and then Barney is there looking through the kids files. And he basically realizes that 15 of the victims had some sort of personal connection or knew each other or knew kids who knew each other, right? Either a personal or a geographic connection between 15 of the 28 victims. Yeah. Barney says 28 again. So I guess somehow over the course of this episode, there's eight more missing kids, which is crazy. Yeah, I think some time passes in this episode because there's time passes like weeks pass before they even get to the river, you know? Right. And I, and again, you don't know how long the stakeout is supposed to be. I mean, we're told that it's four weeks. So I guess, well, I guess it is supposed to be. I, I guess they do give you a time frame there. No, because remember the, the police chief says you have four weeks and yeah. then this is the last, this is the last week. Uh, so I guess we do know that this episode spans four weeks, although it's just hard to believe that you know, the killer could go, have eight victims in four weeks. Well, once once they start sticking out the bridge, it's that long. But there's time that passes before that, too. It's, yeah, it's true, too. It's, yeah, it's a long episode. And also, by the way, just to sort of bring it back home, you know, it also implies how long this is dragging out for Bill and Nancy, right? Yeah. This sort of purgatory that they're in where they're kind of stuck and can't move forward with anything, right? And and And... Nancy is home all day long, you know, with her bad thoughts for months on. And this is just one episode and it spans anywhere from four to eight weeks. Yep. Um, so we cut to the final night of the stakeout and Bill and Holden are sharing a car. And you kind of get the sense that the cops are done and like basically people are just falling asleep in their cars. Right. They're getting paid to sleep sitting up. Yep. Overtime. Um and then, you know, the, Bill and Holden talk about how some of these kids might be hustling, right? Selling, you know, petty goods or maybe 
other things, right? Right, just to get by. Prostitution. Right? They all know each other, right? In the, right, exactly. They all sort of know each other through crossing in these sort of various and sundry paths. Right, and then the radio goes nuts. Right, because they somebody hears a splash. Right. Right. After a moment when it seems like nothing's happening, like right before that moment, Barney goes on the radio to basically say, is anybody even awake? Right. Right. At the absolute lull, they hear a splash. Right. And then everybody springs to life. Right. right. And lo and behold, there is a car coming across the bridge and its headlights were off. Barney sees the headlights snap on right. and they immediately jump into action. There's actually sort of a nice drag netty moment where Bill puts that, that light that magnetically sticks to the siren that magnetically sticks to the roof of the car right. on the top of their car. And they see him and they I've all I've always wanted to do that, by the way. <laughs> I do it all the time. I have one of those. I'm not even a cop, but I have one of those. I just drive around <laughs> with it flashing. Um, and they all sort of like jump into action and turn on their lights and their sirens. And the guy on the bridge turns around. He's behaving suspiciously. And they jump out and they, they pull him over. Um, and in, I think, honestly, in, in one of the best moments of this whole season, because th this whole season is about delayed gratification, right? Yep. They run over this guy, and it's a, a black male, right, right, in the age group that they are looking right, for. Right, he's fairly young. Right. And um, he has a great line, right? By the way, it's Wayne Williams, right? We know that it's Wayne Williams that they, that they catch at the bridge here. And holy cow, does this guy look like the real Wayne Williams. Like, if you look at photos of Wayne Williams online, it looks not a little like this guy. It looks exactly like this guy. Like we haven't seen this close a match in the season since Manson. Right. Um, but they match like all the big serial killers. They match them so closely every yeah. time. So the police have his ID and they see Wayne Williams is his name. And they say to him, do you know why we pulled you over? And he says, very tellingly, I'm, I guess That's it must about, be about all those boys. Right. It's sort of soft spoken they're like, way. They're all like stunned, like looking at each other like, what? Yeah. You know, he came out and said it before we even had the chance to. Right. And they ramp up the Pat Benatar soundtrack while they're like, <laughs> when they're pulling him over. Pat Benatar. Um, yeah, no, uh, you know, it's funny because I mean, I've read the John Douglas books and I've, I've read a fair bit about at kid as they call it, like the Atlanta child murders. And, Oh my God, does this guy look just like Wayne Williams? It's amazing. Yep. So, uh, and then um, we, we very, very quickly, right? We fade to black, the music uh, ramps up, and we have literally one episode of Mindhunter left. Yep. And then uh, after that, we're kind of in the, uh, the unknown. Yep. Time for limbo again. Right. We don't know. We don't know if or when the show is coming back. My personal. Uh, suspicion we're recording this episode on Christmas Day 2019. My personal suspicion is we don't see any more Mindhunter until 2021. Right about, I predict right about elect, right about Inauguration Day, uh, uh, we will, in 2021, we will have, uh, we will have a new episode of Mindhunter to watch. But I think it's going to be about that far away. Hmm. 
Oh, that'll suck. We shall see. Yeah, yeah. Well, remember, it was two years, right? It was two two years before this season came out. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, I don't know. I, the next episode, by the way, I've gone ahead and I've watched episode nine. It's really big. Like, a lot happens in episode nine. So I think we're going to have to give it the time it's due. But, I mean, episode nine is about as big an episode as this show has ever mounted. So uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but man, does a lot happen in episode nine. Like if this episode had stuff they could have cut out the next episode, honestly, they could have expanded it to two. There's so much happens in the next one, but I don't want to give too much away. Uh, Should we wrap there? Oh, well, just, we should say the email. Just remember, uh, you can always reach out to us at mindhunter. Uh, dot companion at gmail.com or popcorn drink combo at gmail.com uh, we've been getting your emails lately and we do appreciate that so please uh, send us comments or complaints as you have especially if they're uh, compliments all right should we wrap there see you next time all right thanks <laughs>